All right, turn if you would to Genesis chapter 4. And let's pray again as we prepare to uh, study God's Word today. Lord, we have the wonderful privilege of opening Your Word again and reading it and studying it. And I pray that we would not waste this opportunity, but that we would, in humility, Receive what you have from your word for us today, that we would not resist it, that by your spirit you would enable us to receive it in faith, and that as we have just sung, that we would in fact be still and know that you are God, and knowing that fall on our faces before you pleading for your grace to work in and through us. And I pray that you would accomplish that uh, in our lives today as a result of uh, your word being preached. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we left off at the end of chapter 3 last week with a pretty sad and disappointing scene. You remember it, right? The ones whom... God had created to bear His image, to rule over His creation, had fallen into sin, and were banished from the garden that He had originally placed them in. But thankfully, the narrative of Genesis does not leave us there. As sad and disappointing as that scene was, we move on. We move Ahead, The text leads us forward to the next narrative, the next story of how God is going to work uh, in His creation, in the lives of His people. And the narrative leads us to chapter 4, where we find once again a scene of great hope, great anticipation that God was doing something great again for His people. And so we read Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. You will remember that central to God's words back in chapter 3 God's words to Adam and Eve following their sin was the promise of an offspring. And here, as Cain is born, Eve's own words, as she is naming him, seem to indicate that here is this offspring. Here is an offspring in fulfillment of God's promise to her. And as she makes this statement, she actually describes Cain in in an interesting way. Instead of saying, I have gotten a child or a baby with the help of the Lord, she says, I have gotten a man with the help from the Lord. And it seems to indicate that Eve was demonstrating a hope that 
where the first man fell into sin, she has received a new man, a second Adam, who would succeed where the first Adam fell. And even in, in this record, though, of, of their births, there's great joy. There's great anticipation. They have received this offspring. But even in this, these first two introductory verses, there is a foreshadowing of what will happen later on in our story. Cain is described as a worker of the ground. And without reading too much into the text, this describing him as a worker of the ground, that was a task primarily associated with man after the fall. Laboring with the ground. Abel is described as a keeper of the sheep. That word keep, reminiscent of God's creation mandate to the man and the woman to keep the garden, to rule over it. And while I don't want to read too much into those descriptions, they do foreshadow what will happen in describing the nature of these two boys, these two young men, as they will grow up. So there's hope once again. Whereas man and woman, Adam and Eve, were banished from the garden, experience, they are experiencing the effects of the fall, the effects of the curse. But once again, there's hope that God's word was true. And that God was about fulfilling the promise that he had made of an offspring for Eve. This was a hope, however, that would soon be shattered by a series of tragic events. And we're going to observe that uh, today as we first of all see the downward spiral of human rebellion. The bulk of this narrative in Genesis chapter 4 will lead us from Adam and Eve's first descendant, Cain, through his line to his descendant, Lamech. Two men that will bookend this view of the downward spiral of human rebellion following Adam and Eve's fall and their expulsion from the garden. So as we look at the, the downward spiral of human rebellion, we're going to focus our attention, as this narrative does, on the lives of two men, Cain and then his descendant, Lamech. Let's first notice the rebellion of Cain, beginning in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now we don't know what prompted the the offering of these sacrifices. We don't know if this was a regular part of their lives where they... They offered routinely uh, sacrifices. We don't know if this was a regular part of their, uh, their lives where they offered sacrifices to God or if this was maybe uh, some 
point in time that they had anticipated for some time that they were going to be uh, making this offering of worship to the Lord. But whatever the occasion was, here we have these two young men, Cain and his brother Abel, bringing a sacrifice to the Lord, offering an act of worship before Him. And each, each of these young men's offering was uh, related to his uh, occupation, his vocation. Cain offered the fruit of the ground and Abel offered the firstborn of his flock. And both men seemingly offer these sacrifices with the hope that God is going to receive their sacrifice, their worship, as an acceptable offering. But as we just read, God regarded, He had regard for Abel and his offering, but He did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So at this point, we have to ask ourselves a very important question that is key to our understanding of this text. Why does God have regard for one offering and not the other? What was the difference between the two, these two young men's offering? Whereas God was pleased with one, accepted one, but he move this closer. But he did not regard the other. He did not accept uh, the other. What was the difference? Well, some have suggested. Would it be easier if I just held it? Sorry, Tim. Some have suggested that the difference. In the two offerings is that Abel's involved a, the killing of an animal and the shedding of blood, whereas Cain's was simply an offering of vegetables and fruit or whatever else he had, he had grown in the garden. And I think that perhaps is, is one reason. But even as we read through the, the Pentateuch, through God's institution of sacrifices, we see that in those sacrifices, there's both burnt offerings, which include the death of an animal and the shedding of blood. And there's also grain offerings, which, include, which do not include the shedding of blood. So I think we might be reading into the text a little bit if we, if we come to that conclusion. Because I think there's other things in this text that tip us off to what's going on. More than just uh, the absence of blood and the death of an animal in Cain's sacrifice. So what are these clues uh, that tip us off to what, what is different between these two sacrifices. Well, first, there is a stark descri- uh, difference in the description of what they offered. I'm sure you noticed that as we read through it. Notice how Abel's sacrifice is described. It says that he brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. We could read this. He brought the fattest of the firstborn, the fattest of their, their fat portions. Abel brought the best of the best that he had. Maybe he had spent that whole year raising, raising an animal, picking out the very best one, and then offering that to the Lord. However it went down, we know that Abel offered the absolutely very best of what he had. On the other hand, Cain's sacrifice is simply described as being an, an offering of the fruit of the ground. In fact, I think some translations may, may state it as he brought some of the fruit of the ground. There's not nearly the, the superlative description that is given to Abel's offering. So there is, there is a difference, first of all, in the quality of their offering. Abel bringing the very best 
of what he had to offer. And Cain simply bringing almost, you could imagine him going out to his garden, just grabbing whatever was the easiest uh, to get to. The first thing he just grabbed and went off to, to offer this sacrifice. But secondly, not only notice that the basis of God's evaluation was on the quality of their sacrifice, but notice that God was not evaluating the sacrifice alone. He was also evaluating the one who was bringing it. Notice how it's worded. He says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So there was something about the person. There was something going on within the heart of each man that prompted God to either accept that offering or reject it. And this is even confirmed by uh, the New Testament commentary in this story from Hebrews 11, where the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Abel offered his sacrifice in faith, offering the very best of the best. Cain, he offered his sacrifice according to what he thought was best, but not in faith according to what God had prescribed. Now, it's not clear how God made it evident to them that he had accepted or rejected their sacrifices. Perhaps he sent fire down to consume Abel's sacrifice. Or maybe he spoke to them, letting them know that he had accepted it. Or maybe somehow they, they, had just, they just knew whether or not God, uh, what God had thought of their sacrifice. But whatever, whatever method God used to communicate his acceptance or, reject, or his rejection to Cain and Abel, the fact that God had rejected his sacrifice led Cain to be very bitterly angry to the point that even his countenance revealed to all what was going on in his heart. The Bible says his face fell, his countenance fell. We could read this and understand this as he went into a depression because God had not accepted his offering. And we see, though, the Lord respond really in a way similar as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. God comes down to to Cain and has this conversation with Cain. And in his questions, just as he did with Adam and Eve in the garden, God, in his questioning of Cain, is seeking to bring Cain to the point of repentance and faith and a desire to offer an acceptable sacrifice to him. God addresses the fact that his countenance has fallen. Why is he angry? Why has your face fallen? And then he encourages him that if you do well, if you offer a sacrifice by my standards, which pleases me out of a heart of faith, you will be accepted. But God also warns Cain that if his rebellion goes unconquered, that 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 sin and that rebellion will master him. It will rule over him. It will dominate him. A warning, no doubt, given by God in anticipation of what Cain was going to do in response to this festering anger and bitterness that had been produced in his heart. 
But we see that God's warning fall, his warnings fall on deaf ears. Because Cain continues to follow his evil passions to a premeditated and violent act. Look again, begin reading in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's, bro- your bl- brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's actions in this section reveal to us just how devastating the sin was that was present in his heart. It gives to us a picture of the effects of what happens when sin is allowed to dominate the heart of a person. It's left out of the translation that that I'm reading from, but some translations include... the beginning of verse 8, that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and said, let's go out into the field. And nonetheless, we know that they go out in the field. So it seems likely that, that Cain, in fact, in speaking with Abel, had gotten him to go out into the field. And in these days, the field, as it still is, I guess, was, a, was an isolated place. It was a place away from everyone else, away from... Uh, notice from those who might be watching. He lured Abel out into an isolated place. And then once he had gotten him alone, he acted on his sinful passion. He acted upon this anger and bitterness that was in his heart. And he murdered Abel. Thus, he was disobeying the warnings that God had graciously given to him when he was questioning him. But again, the Lord comes to him, just as he has done throughout the last two chapters. He comes to him first with questions. And again, I still think that God is, is attempt, uh, attempting to, to draw out of Cain a confession, repentance, for what he had done. And in God's questioning of Cain, there are two unmistakable implications. The first implication is that God highlights the relationship that Cain shared with his brother, Abel, which should have prevented him from acting the way that he did. He says, where is Abel, your brother? And throughout the narrative, we find the word brother used, I believe it's seven times, describing Abel as Cain's brother. And yet Cain, the wickedness of his heart, had led him to murder his own brother. The second implication of God's questioning of Cain is he points out, just as he did to Adam and Eve, that it was impossible for him to hide from his sin. What does he tell Cain? He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Cain, it was, it's impossible for you 
to hide your sin from an all-seeing and an all-knowing God. The same is true for us today. It's impossible for us to hide our sin, even if it's just a sin within our heart currently. It's impossible to hide that sin from an all-knowing and an all-seeing God. Then God pronounces upon Cain a curse. We noticed last week that God did not curse Adam and Eve as a result of their sin. He cursed the serpent and he cursed the ground. But he did not curse Adam and Eve. But here, God curses Cain for, his, for not only his sin of disobedience and murder, but also on top of that, his lack of repentance and remorse for that sin even when God confronted him for it. He still demonstrated anger and bitterness. No longer would this worker of the ground, Cain, experience the fruit of that labor as he, as he had done before. But now, instead of being known as a worker of the ground, he would be known as a wanderer, a fugitive, Cain, in just one generation, had taken man who, just previous to this, in in the lives of his parents, had fallen, had disobeyed God. And here is Cain, we see illustrated the, the absolute destruction that sin has when left unchecked in the human heart. And I think God has even a word for us. From the, from the experience of Cain, observing Cain, what, what his heart attitude was, even, even as he went to worship God. At the very beginning, this all started, you remember, with an act of worship to God. And Abel worshipped God with a heart of faith, offering the very best. But Cain, off, he worshipped the Lord with what appears to be a heart just of duty. This, this is just my duty. And I think we can learn from that. As we come to worship the Lord, let us worship the Lord with our hearts. Instead of coming and just going through the motions, instead of just showing up here and, and going through our, you know, our Christian duty of, of going to church, of singing songs, Worshiping the Lord. God is not pleased with that kind of worship. That's not worship at all. Worship that is not rooted in our own hearts of, of joy and, and faith in God are not as acceptable to Him. You see, that was the that was the very beginning of Cain's rebellion. He worshiped God on his own terms. He did not worship God because of who God was, but he worshiped God according to his own way. And we see that 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 small root led ultimately to the murder of his own brother and a curse from the Lord. Now we're going to look at the rest of, of the Cain narrative a little bit later on, but I want us to skip ahead to to see the, the rebellion of Cain's descendant Lamech. Because we're observing first the, this downward spiral of human rebellion as a result of the presence of sin after the fall. 
So we see the rebellion of Lamech beginning in verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. Skip down to verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And the structure of this narrative draws our attention to this seventh name in the listing of, of Adam's genealogy through Cain. This structure is parallel with the genealogy in the next chapter where the seventh name through the line of of Seth is highlighted, Enoch. So there is a a contrast between Enoch and this man Lamech, the descendant of Cain. And certainly here we can see, if nowhere else, human rebellion has spiraled out of control as a result of sin. Our first introduction to Lamech there in verse 19 reveals that he was the first to abuse God's perfect design for marriage of one man and one woman in perfect unity. Lamech takes two wives. He's the first that we have recorded to do so. Perhaps this is an attitude of arrogance and pride that he takes for himself these two wives. There's even some commentators have pointed out that the names of these two women, essentially we could understand them as being uh, beautiful, pretty, and a sweet voice, indicating that Lamech had given into sensuality in, mar- in the marrying of these two wives. But it gets far worse because Lamech rehearses for these two wives a song of violence and vengeance that reveals the absolute corruption in his heart. He boasts to these two wives, as we just read, that he killed a man for wounding him or bruising him. In the last part of 23 there, those are parallel sentences, likely just referring to one man, not, not multiple men that he had, he had killed. But he boasts to his wives that he had killed this man. This was a... a This was a badge of honor to him, that he had violently destroyed the life of another who had simply bruised him. (coughs) On top of that, he demonstrates his own ruthlessness by comparing himself to his ancestor Cain, by proclaiming that if Cain deserved a sevenfold vengeance, that Lamech himself deserved a 77-fold vengeance. Multiplying the violence that, that he himself had acted upon. A statement of, of absolute arrogance that he was going to take vengeance into his own hand. He didn't, need, he didn't need God's seven-fold vengeance that he had talked about with Cain. But he was going to take matters into his own hands and he was going to avenge himself 77-fold. If we are ever tempted to minimize the destructiveness of sin, we need look no further 
than the lives of these two men and see that sin has damaging effects as it's passed from one generation to the other. And even though the presence of sin, which which originated in the garden by Adam and Eve, the presence of sin has led Adam's descendants into this downward spiral of rebellion. I also want us to see that there is still hope, once again, that God himself will enter into this narrative, just as he did last week in Genesis chapter 3. (coughs) There we looked at God coming and demonstrating his grace in the midst of brokenness. Today, we're going to see that God demonstrates his grace in the face of human rebellion. Because even as, as, as bad as it, as the description is in, in, the, lot, in the line of Cain, in, in his life and in the life of his descendant Lamech, as bad as sin is, God still gives us hope. God still intervenes and demonstrates uh, his grace. So we see the, the downward spiral of human rebellion, the effects of sin Unchecked, the effects of sin apart from God's intervening grace. And now we see the demonstration of God's grace. Excuse me. And this is a theme that I think we're going to find throughout the book of Genesis as we study through it over the coming weeks. That even, even when man rebels against God, even when man fails, when man disobeys God, God is still gracious in the face of that human rebellion. And I want us to begin our, our look at, at the demonstration of God's grace by going back to the rest of the story regarding Cain. Because we're going to see that That even though Cain was characterized by anger and bitterness and sinful rebellion, we see that God was still gracious to him. Look back in verse uh, 13. This is after the, the Lord had cursed Cain. He had sent him out, pronounced him to be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain's response to the Lord, verse 13, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain's response to the Lord after he had pronounced a curse and judgment upon him for the murder of his brother. Cain's statement to the Lord is, 
My punishment is greater than I can bear. I cannot bear the punishment that you have just placed upon me, God. I cannot bear it. It's too much. This phrase could be understood a couple of different ways. Some some have understood this statement by Cain to really be a, a confession. The word for punishment is, is the word for sin, actually. And so some have understood this to be uh, Cain repenting. My sin is, is too much for me to bear. But this really does not fit the entire scriptural description of Cain, who never once is described as being a remorseful person for his sin. He's always described as being an angry man, a bitter man, a sinful man who was not repentant. So I think it's best that we understand this statement as one final protest of bitterness to the Lord who was punishing him for his sin. Because now, as a result of his sin and rebellion, Cain was going to be an outcast. He was going to be isolated from his family. He was going to be isolated from God and other men. And he was going to be a wanderer upon the earth. But, God does demonstrate his grace to Cain, does he not? Because Cain's greatest concern was that when the Lord sent him out to be a wanderer, that as a result of Cain's murder of his brother Abel, that someone else was going to take justice into their own hands and was going to kill Cain. You see, I think this is another reason why this was not a a confession by Cain. This was not repentance on his part. What was he more concerned with? He was concerned about himself. Lord, they're going to kill me. Someone else is going to kill me for my sin. But God was gracious to Cain. Even though he was a murderer, God was gracious to him and promised to him that if someone would take his life, if someone would kill Cain, that person would would receive a sevenfold vengeance from the Lord. Again, the reference to seven there. Uh, This idea of completion. God would take perfect, complete vengeance if someone would take the life of Cain. You see, Cain still bore the image of God. Cain was still a human being that had been created in God's image. Now, the exact nature of what this mark was that God placed upon him is is unknown. We don't know what this mark was, and, and it would be a waste of time really for us to, to try to figure that out. It's not, it's not the point. The point is that God placed this mark on him so that any would-be attacker, would-be killer of Cain would know that God was going to avenge the death of Cain should that happen. So despite the fact that Cain had, Cain, the, the, the fact that Cain was a murderer, God was still gracious to him and promised to protect him. Perhaps even a demonstration to Cain that that life was valuable. Even though he had just taken the life of his brother, God reminding him that human life is valuable. A good reminder uh, for us today, I believe it's Sanctity of Life Sunday, a good reminder for us that all human life 
is valuable because we are made in the image of God. We reflect the image of God. The movement of Cain following God's pronouncement upon him reveals to us how far away from from God's blessing he had gone. How far removed Cain's rebellious heart and his commission of sin had led him away from God's original design. See, at the beginning of chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve in the garden in perfect unity and harmony, just as God had intended it to be. And just a chapter and a half later, in our narrative that we're reading, we have Cain moving away from the presence of the Lord. Whereas at the end of chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve expelled from the garden. We're told that they simply moved outside the garden. But here, Cain is described as moving away from the very presence of the Lord. So as sad and disappointing as chapter 3 ended for us, this is even, even more disappointing, even more stark, of a man who, because of his own rebellion, was moving, had moved himself away from the very presence of the Lord. The text also tells us that he settled in the land of Nod. The word Nod here, the Hebrew word means wandering. We could literally read this as Cain lived in the land of wandering. That was, that was his lot for the rest of his life. He was going to be a wanderer. That was what characterized him as he left the presence of the Lord, no longer under the blessing of God. Now he was a, a wanderer upon the earth. But God had demonstrated his grace to Cain in protecting him. Even, even the fact that Cain was allowed by God to wander, to live his life, was a gracious act of God. Secondly, God displays his common grace upon Cain's descendants. Look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushahel, and Methushahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. So we see in this record of Cain's genealogy, we see that though this was a, this was a rebellious lot, beginning with Cain himself and ending with Lamech as we just saw, we see that God was demonstrating what we call his common grace on Cain's descendants. You see, the genealogy of Cain's descendants is characterized by human achievement and advancement. 
Cain himself built a city, naming it Enoch after his son. Jabal developed a tent dwelling, agricultural development. Jubal was the first to use musical instruments. The father of the fine arts, we could, we could say. And Tubal-Cain developed metallurgy, working with bronze and iron. You see, these, these earliest humans were not cavemen, just walking around grunting to each other. These were men who, who again, created in the image of God, were able to develop instruments, musical instruments, instruments of war. We could even connect Lamech's sword song, as it's often known, with the the invention by his own son of the sword, perhaps. But nonetheless, what is unmistakable in this listing, this genealogy of Cain's descendants, what is unmistakable is that man, even in a fallen state, Man, even, even though he has fallen, still possesses the Imago Dei, still possesses the image of God that enables him to create in a way reminiscent of God's creation. You see, man, mankind, humanity, we are made in the image of God. We still reflect the image of God. We still have the capability to create with our hands, not the same way God created but reminiscent of that because our creator made us he imprinted on us his own image we have the ability to create we have the ability to advance technologically and I think even as we observe the world around us and we look at great advancements in science great advancements in technology we can look at those things and even even though much of that work might be done by non-Christians, unbelievers, people who do not attribute their skills to the Lord. We can still appreciate the work of their hands because it is also a reflection of God's image. God displayed His common grace upon Cain's descendants. These were not men that were characterized by a knowledge of God a following after God. These were men who were known for their great achievements. But even in that, we can, we can see and understand that God was blessing them out of His grace, enabling them to do these great things. Jesus Himself testified to God's common grace to all men, even to those who are unrighteous. Matthew 5.45 For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This reality reminds us that we are able to enjoy the work of man's hands because we still possess the image of God. But that ultimately, apart from God's grace, working internally in our hearts to change us, to regenerate us, these works can easily become a diversion from the glory of God. So God's demonstration of his grace hits Cain. God was great he, he was gracious to Cain in protecting his life. God displayed common grace upon Cain's descendants. 
And then in this narrative, the pinnacle of God's grace demonstrated is that he provides another heir. He provides another child to Adam and Eve. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was uh, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The language here in verse 25 is, is pretty much parallel to verse 1 and the birth of Cain. Eve names her son and states the significance of that name. Here the Hebrew words for Seth and appointed sound very similar. There's a play on words. And that being the reason that Eve recognized God had appointed to her another heir in place of Abel. You see, we get down through verse 24 and we realize that the two boys that had been born at the beginning of the chapter, they were, not, they were obviously not the offspring that had been promised in Genesis chapter 3. You see, Abel was dead at this time and Cain had disqualified himself from being that offspring that would bring hope and victory over the serpent. One point of contrast here between these two births. I'm speaking of the birth of Cain in verse 1 and the birth of Seth here in verse 25. Remember back in verse 1, Eve said she had gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It seems to be that she viewed that as partially her work with the help of the Lord. But here she, she states her testimony is that God had done this work of providing another heir. God had appointed another offspring instead of Abel. This was the work of the Lord. And so through the birth of Seth, there's, there's once again hope. The hope that had been dashed in chapter 3 at the fall, the hope that had been dashed through the life of Cain, this hope in a coming offspring. This renewed the hope in the promise of God that he was going to provide a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent as was promised to to Eve in chapter 3. And here the birth of Seth, another stark contrast with the line of Cain. The line of Cain, remember, they were... They were known for their human achievement and advancement. That's what, they, that's what marked them. They were known for, for that. What was the line of Seth known for? Even as Moses writes in describing this line, the very last phrase of this chapter, the line of Seth was known for the fact that at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And he uses here the, the, the covenant name Yahweh, the name whereby God related with his people. An indication, again, that, that there was reason to hope that God was going to fulfill his promise. And this genealogical section here introduces us to a formula that's going to be followed throughout the book of Genesis. We'll see this repeated 
where the, the unrighteous line, the, the line that is not chosen by God, is, is dealt with first, briefly, and then there's an introduction to, to the righteous line, the one through whom God would bring the seed of the woman, the ultimate seed of the woman. This section, chapter 4, concludes a section that began in, in chapter 2, verse 4. And was introduced with the phrase, these are the generations. This is a formula that, again, something we're going to see throughout the book of Genesis. This introduction, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And this section has moved us from absolute perfection in the garden. The beauty of God's creation in an unfallen state. It's moved us from there through the fall of man into sin to the establishment of two distinct family lines, one righteous and the other unrighteous. Another theme we see in this chapter, as we read through it, perhaps you noticed it, the theme of the birth of sons. Again, this is a recognition that God was fulfilling and would fulfill His promise of offspring. Over and over again, the birth of Cain and Abel, Then after Cain murders Abel, a line of sons born to Cain. And then finally Seth was born. And and in that, this righteous line was started. So we are beginning to see that, that God is sovereignly working to accomplish His purpose. And He will continue to do so every step of the way. And every step will demonstrate His sovereign power and His divine grace. And the culmination of, of God's fulfillment of His promise is in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who, who came to, as the seed of the woman, to crush the serpent, to defeat the serpent, and the sin that He had introduced into the world. And it seems that the, this Cain-Abel conflict is... Just an example in the ongoing, ongoing battle between the serpent's offspring and Eve's offspring. You remember that, that that's how God described it. There would be conflict. There would be an ongoing battle between the serpent and his offspring and the woman and her offspring. And it seems as though God wants us to see that this is just one of the battles. He's basically marking off two groups of people. And either you are in the, the line of the serpent or you're in the line of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. And the difference between those two families lies in our faith in Jesus Christ. It's through our demonstrating faith in the work of Jesus Christ that we move from one line to the other line. We move from, as Jesus described uh, in the Gospels, to being of our father, the devil, to move into the, the line of Jesus Christ, into the family of Jesus Christ through his work in our behalf. We see that Abel is a type of Christ. We know this from the New Testament. Hebrews twelve twenty four. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word 
than the blood of Abel. The fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to defeat the serpent and sin, the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to do that, demands that we respond in faith in Jesus Christ to attain true righteousness. There's also hope from this narrative to those looking for personal victory over sin. There's hope in Jesus for that. Remember God's word to Cain about sin crouching at his door? God was warning Cain that that sin was, was sitting there at his door, crouching. The imagery, he, sin was ready to pounce on him. Sin was ready to defeat him. Is not that imagery the same as Peter describes in 1 Peter 5, 7, where he says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour? But there's hope in Jesus for those of us that experience that roaring lion that seeks to devour us. You see, Jesus, in contrast to Cain, did master the devil. Jesus succeeded where Cain failed. Jesus mastered the devil when he faced temptation. And even when he was murdered by the serpent's seed, Jesus' blood does not cry out from the ground. Jesus' blood cries out from the mercy seat in heaven where it provides forgiveness of sin. And it provides ongoing victory over temptation. And my prayer is that each one of us would fall, as I prayed earlier, that we would fall on our faces before before God, recognizing our absolute need of His grace. You see, we can, we can view Cain as being a really bad person, but unless we see ourselves as being just like Cain, we'll never turn to Jesus Christ to be our rescuer. So we must realize that unless we look to Jesus to master the sin crouching at our door, unless we look to Jesus to overcome our temptation through us, we're going to be just like Cain. We're going to fall into sin just like he did. So let us learn from God's demonstration of his grace in the face of human rebellion that we're all rebels in our hearts. We are all the source of human rebellion in our lives. We all possess that same sin nature, so let us look to Jesus. Let's look to Jesus in in faith to save us from our sins, to rescue us from our sins. And let's continue to look to Jesus to overcome day by day the temptations that would rule over us, that would master us. Let's pray.